Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Dylan Conroy, your host of the Digital Rainmaker podcast. I'm here with Keith Kroc, the chairman of DocuSign, co-founder of Reba, and near and dear to my heart, the former grand consul of Sigma Chi. So Keith, let's kick it off with a quick question. So Silicon Valley is the land of disruption and transformation. How do you look at Silicon Valley after being here for 30 years, considering you grew up in Ohio, went to Purdue? Dylan, first of all, it's an honor to be on the show. The way I look at Silicon Valley is that it's the West Point of capitalism, it's the United Nations, it's a total meritocracy, there's a premium on youth. The only way you could be considered a failure is not to have some failures. Risk-taking is at a premium, and it's also the land of give back and pay it forward because the secret sauce is so much is mentorship. Harvard professor Clayton Christensen, who coined the term disruptive innovation, he observed that you are the only Harvard MBA alum who has built four different categories in four different industries at four very different companies, leveraging four unique technology paradigm shifts. Tell me about those industries you disrupted and transformed. The last one was DocuSign. It comes to systems of agreement and being able to digitize. Now we have over 400 million unique users, 400,000 companies have standardized on us. We created a, a large network. We just took the company public and we've become the global standard. The first one was in the robotics area in the mm-hmm. 1980s. This is when I was at General Motors and we formed a joint venture that I ran for many years with a company called Fujitsu Fanuc, and we became the industry leader by a factor of three. We put GE, IBM, and Westinghouse out of business, still the largest robot manufacturer in the world today of industrial robots. And then I came out to Silicon Valley, got together with some PhD scientists from the IBM research labs, and we created a category called mechanical design, synthesis, and engineering automation. So we basically took what required PhDs and regular design engineers could use it my my Sigma Chi son uh, <laughs> from USC uses it at the Jet Propulsion Laboratories wow. NASA down in uh, Pasadena. The other one was we disrupted the oldest, probably the oldest industry in the world, and that's commerce, created the category of business-to-business electronic commerce company, Ariba. Now, the Ariba network has, it's now $1.6 trillion of commerce goes through the Ariba network on an annual basis. That's Amazing. more than eBay, Amazon, and Alibaba combined. Wow. As it pertains to DocuSign, when I was doing the research on you, I was thinking about how DocuSign is one of those companies that has actually become a verb. It's actually become the vernacular. When you send a contract to somebody to e-sign it, you say, hey, I'm going to DocuSign that. How do you build a brand so strong where it becomes the leader in the category, like Kleenex, for instance, you, you use a Kleenex, but it's actually a tissue, right? So how do, do you think about a brand in that way? Is that intentional where you go out and you want to actually become the vernacular where all your competitors just aren't even in the equation because you've taken over the language almost in a way? Well, there's no doubt that that's a strategic advantage when you're the category king. Those things don't happen by accident. We, at one point, were thinking maybe we should change the name of the company, DocuSign, because we'll branch out from there. And it's it's just part of our product, the signing aspect. So we created a category, Digital Transaction Management, and then we expanded and grew that to some agreement. But what we said is, with that name, let's turn that into a verb. So there were a lot of strategies and tactics behind that. But at the end of the day, 
It's really the customers when they sing your value proposition that really create it as a verb. And it just has a ring to it. You know, let's just go DocuSign. You know, everybody, I was with James Gordon and he was interviewing me and he goes, hey, is DocuSign a noun or a verb? And I said, well, you know, it's like love, whatever you feel in your heart. And yeah. Maybe it's an adverb, an adjective, but I miss that day in school. But yeah, it's it really has become a verb around the world. It sounds like you've used these same skills within the fraternity. They just renamed Sigma Chi Leadership Training Workshop to the Croc Transformational Leadership Workshop. How did you transform Sigma Chi? For all the Sigma Chi's out there, it was when I was Grand Pro Consul. Which basically, it means I was the international vice president and the president-elect of the Sigma Chi fraternity. There's about 350,000 members around the world at 250 universities. I really thought that this was time for Sigma Chi to have their first strategic plan. We were coming up on our 150th anniversary, formed a team of some of the best thinkers in Sigma Chi, people like Bill George, who wrote True North, yep. and he was former CEO and chairman of Medtronic. Bruce Harrell, he was executive vice president. IBM, one of the great strategy guys at IBM, and it was kind of a diagonal slice. And so we said, let's create basically the Sigma Chi playbook and define the vision, the mission, the values, the long-term goals, the strategy, which ended up be seven strategic imperatives, all boiled down to execution. And so we started with the vision and the mission. The vision we made back then was a bold decision, and that was to really pivot to set the vision out there, and that is to be the preeminent collegiate leadership development organization and put all the wood behind that arrow. And a mission is to develop values-based leaders for the betterment of character, campus, and community. And that's really, over the last 15 years, has really changed the dimension of the Sigma Chi fraternity. And it's really taken us to a leadership position, especially times like this. I think we're really out of the uh, head of the pack. I think we're the model now. I was really inspired by, we got to challenge the status quo. It's just not a social fraternity and everything everybody associates with fraternities. It's yeah. really focused on a noble cause. It was fun doing the research on you over the last couple of weeks because through reading all these articles that you've either written or articles that have been, been written about you, you see little snippets of our fraternity's history kind of woven into even the DNA of some of the things that people have profiled on you. In the larger business community, I noticed that different temperaments, talents, and convictions make it into uh, some of the philosophies that you've espoused even at the corporate level and some of the companies you've been involved with. What does that different temperaments, talents, and convictions mean to you as it pertains to your roles as a leader in a lot of these great companies that you've been yeah, with? Yeah, no, that's a great question. To me, that means diversity of thought. I really believe that diversity of thought is the catalyst for genius and the secret sauce behind building a high-performance team. Experience that in the early days in the fraternity but it gets even compounded out there in the business world, especially a place like Silicon Valley. It's like the United Nations. Uh, and, and, you know, the irony is that when I first became a VP at General Motors at age 26, I hadn't had a lot of leadership experience other than my Sigma Chi experience. And I just applied those principles to all the companies that I built. By the time I got to be grand counsel, I then took the stuff that I learned in business, like the playbook, which mm -hmm. we had done with all the other companies, and applied it back to Sigma Chi. It's kind of like a cycle mm -hmm. of learning. Yes. Everybody asks me, they go, hey, where'd you learn how to be a transformational leader? And 
was it at Harvard Business School? I go, <laughs> well, I learned a lot at Harvard Business School, but not that. I really learned through Sigma Chi fraternity. Wow. Were there any Sigma Chi's along your career that helped you along the way that mentored you? Oh, yeah, a lot of them. Bill George and Bruce Harrell are great examples. Another great example, another Purdue Sigma Chi, Mark Carlson. Mm -hmm. And we built seven companies together. He just always, and not necessarily by, by design, but it just ends up we always just keep working together. So DocuSign, Ariba, Razna, General Motors, JMF Robotics. Even when I was grand counsel, I brought him in to be our chief marketing officer. I just kind of made a, that position. Who knows? Maybe there'll be a next uh, adventure out there. Uh, of course. Were there any Sigma Chi's that you mentored throughout the years? I'm sure there must be hosts of them, but is there any that stand out? And how did that person seek you out and have that happen? Yeah, there's a ton of them. One of them was a guy named Paul Claudier, and this is back at General Motors. He was 16 years old. He wasn't even a SIG yet. Wow. He was kind of like the male boy. <laughs> I just kind of adopted him. And then when he went off to college, I said, man, you got to be a Sigma Chi. I was giving him the grip. <laughs> That's great. And he ended up being a chief of staff for me at Ariba. He also worked at Razna. He also worked at DocuSign. He worked at GMF Robotics. So there's a lot of guys along the way that uh, I've had the good fortune to mentor. And I can tell you this, Dylan, that I probably learned more from those young mentees mm -hmm. than they learned from me. You know, yeah. they kind of keep you sharp. I always look at it as a 60-60 deal. Both parties get the best part of the deal. And I think that that is the secret sauce because the most important thing about being a transformational leader is it's not written in a book. And I also believe that you should have multiple mentors because you can't get everything from one individual. And I think there's a genealogy to it as well. Like out here in Silicon Valley, that is the secret sauce. I, I had some great mentors. John Chambers was a great mentor. I had some great mentors at General Motors. And now we've taken it to huge scale at DocuSign by having a 250-person advisory board. I consider all these guys my mentors, the company mentors. These are folks like former CEO of General Motors, of McDonald's, of Adobe, the chairman of Siemens, and all different temperaments, talents, and convictions, because yeah. it's really that diversity of, of thought that is catalyst for genius. You were chairman of the board of trustees at Purdue. People say Purdue is raising the standard in reforming education. How did you approach making that happen? Purdue is the biggest engineering school in the country. It's the second largest number of international students. We have a total of 70,000 students and steep in tradition. The best, the best thing that uh, I did was hire a great president who's Mitch Daniels. And he was most popular two-term governor in the state of Indiana. He was director of the OMB, basically chief financial officer for the U.S., the youngest executive vice president, Eli Lilly. And we just wanted a great leader, even though he didn't come from academia. Mm -hmm. He didn't have a Ph.D. Now, he's no dummy. He prints an undergrad in Georgetown Law. One of the things that we did, we decided to attack this problem in terms of student affordability and $1.4 trillion of student debt in the United States. The first step we took was freeze tuition, wow. which is almost unheard of. And we had frozen it for the last seven years. If you look at real, real dollars and you add in there room and board, it's gone down at Purdue. And there's no other major university that has done that, especially at that scale. The other thing that we did, and I used to pound the table on that, is here we are, the largest engineering school in the country, and we're behind in terms of online learning technology platform. A little while ago, we bought Kaplan for $1 from the Washington Post. <laughs> and 
we use that platform to, to form Purdue University Global. What that does is that creates a platform for online learning, putting all the classes on there. And I think it's a treasure for the United States in terms of retraining the workforce and even prison reform. The other thing is that we just announced a couple of weeks ago as we're kicking off our 150th anniversary that if you're a student at Purdue, once you graduate, you can take all the classes for free online. And how about that for a lifelong learning? And we really believe in that. So now what you see is different universities trying to come up to that, that bar. And I think Mitch Daniels, our president, is probably the most respected president of any university in the United States. How do you define a transformational leader? Yeah, I would say a transformational leader challenges the status quo by mobilizing and empowering high-performance team for, to achieve a noble cause that leaves a profound and far-reaching impact. That's what I would say would be the definition. It sounds like we need a lot more of those. What do you think? Well, there's no doubt about it that I think we do. Well, there's a number of reasons why. One of the most important reasons, the pace of change is accelerating everywhere around the world, especially because of technology. And we need principal leaders to help make sure this new world is a better world for everyone. And I also think individuals have a potential to influence the world more than ever before, and their impact can be much farther reaching. I also think that problems are more complex and interconnected, and what we really need is leaders who can envision solutions to these tough challenges. I also think that the moral principles, democracy, are under threat with everything going on in China, and we need honorable leaders to champion and defend these ideals. The world seems fractured and fragmented and divided, and we need leaders who can inspire and unify. So I think it's really a noble cause to develop the future transformational leaders. And here again, I think that is not something that's written in the book. How you develop them has got to be through multiple mentors. What would you say are the key characteristics of a transformational leader? I break it into three classifications. One is how they relate to the world. Visionary in innovators who strategically create new realities. And they're prolific in terms of it being a far-reaching impact around the world. How they relate to themselves, I would see that as principal challengers who courageously achieve their goals. Mm -hmm. And they're resilient. And then how they relate to others, I think they're inspirational leaders who empower diverse teams to achieve great things. They unify, they mobilize. Those are the key characteristics. And what would you say is the main difference between a transformational leader and a transactional leader? If you look at a transformational leader versus a transactional leader, the ultimate aim for a transformational leader is impact, and that is to achieve a noble cause. Like the ultimate aim for a transactional leader is more like production and efficiency. If you look at the time horizon for a transformational leader, it's strategic, it's long-term. For a transactional leader, it's more tactical, it's more short-term. In terms of who matters for a transformational leader, it's the team, and it's unifying it, and they're aligned. For transactional leaders, sometimes it seems like it's every man for himself. <laughs> and I think the, the motivational model, transformational leader, is more inspirational. It's more mission-driven, where transactional leader is kind of transaction. It's, it's monetary awards or avoid punishment or something like that. And I, the thinking style for a transformational leader is more of a challenging leadership style. For a transactional leader, it's more conformist, maintain that status quo. In terms of organizational 
character, transformational leader, base it on empowerment, where transactional leader base it more on classic hierarchy. And can you develop transformational leaders? I think you can. As I mentioned before, I combination of, of things. But at the end of the day, having great multiple role models is the way to do that. If it can be Googled, it's not a question to ask <laughs> a, a mentor. And I, a key aspect behind that is that the first thing you can ruin a mentor relationship is make it transactional so that, hey, I want this job. I you want help this me with this yeah. recommendation, this introduction. Yeah. This yeah. order. <laughs> I mean, introduction is okay. The other key thing, it's not about just take, take, take. It's take and return to it. Never underestimate how much the mentors earn it from you. As a mentee, a great mentor will ask questions so that you go through a process of discovery. And one of the most important things that a mentor does is points out blind spots because always the most dangerous thing is you don't know what you don't know. That's some of the key ingredients being a transformational leader. I also think that you learn more from your mentors' failures than you do their successes. Mm -hmm. My mom always said the best way to learn is OPE, other people's experiences. <laughs> learn from other people's mistakes. And she yeah. said, you know, you have time enough to make your own, <laughs> but it's better if you learn from somebody else's. It seems like mentorship really needs to happen organically. I've, I've signed up for a few more structured mentor programs and from colleges or even within Sigma Chi. And sometimes it feels like, especially with uh, the generation coming up, they don't really understand the respect of people's time. And the, the like you said, that give and take relationship. A lot of times mentors aren't even somebody that you spend a ton of time with. It's just, you kind of watch them from afar and see how they act and how they conduct themselves and keep in touch. And it has a more natural progression than, Hey, you want to be my mentor? Or... <laughs> right. You can learn from mentors from afar. And I've always used a conceptual model, and I always share this with my five children. I call it the hybrid mentor matrix. So you look at what are the key leadership characteristics, for example, those 12 that I talked about, and then you have your different mentors, and you take the best from column A, the best from column B, the best from column C. <laughs> you can also see what they do wrong and say, hey, I don't want to be like that. So I always would tell my children, my most important role as a father is to make sure you grow up with self-esteem, but the second one is to make sure I facilitate other mentors. I, and I go, I hope I'm on your leadership matrix, but you can learn a lot from what I do wrong. But don't be just like me. Take the best from everybody. I think that's important. And I think when you have a one-on-one -on -one mentor relationship, so much of it is chemistry, too. Mm -hmm. And the mentor has to have some branch of knowledge or experience that really want and, and really want to mentor some people particular stage in their life like mark cuban yeah. he doesn't believe in mentors <laughs> yeah i saw uh, you uh and, called him uh, out a couple of times yeah. on social media he doesn't have any mentors <laughs> no i offered to mark i said let's mentor each other we can learn a lot from each other's mistakes he hasn't called me hasn't taken me <laughs> up on it i don't know where he's hiding kevin o'leary's on the docusign advisory nice. board i said where's he hiding now he goes i don't know i'm just kidding on that biggest constraint that mentors have is their time. That's why you really want to respect that. And that's why nonprofit cause the virtual mentor network to be able to do virtual mentoring at scale with great transformational leaders. And that's just a labor of love for me to, to stage my life, to be able to give back and pay it forward. How do you continually transform yourself? By continually having <laughs> mentors and advisory board, 
is a great example. And you always want to take time to sharpen the saw. You're always looking for that direct, honest feedback that helps point out blind spots. The other thing for me is that my life's always gone in chapters of around six, seven, eight years. DocuSign was a long one. I was 10, but just keep jumping in water over your head. I call it scary fun. And after a while, it, be, it becomes addicting. I yeah. mean, it's an adrenaline rush. It's a thrill. I got a lot of battle scars the way I've made mistakes, but that's when you learn the most. And uh, no risk, no reward, no pain, no gain. I heard a quote from you in an interview, a soundbite about leaning into your fear. Does mm-hmm. that apply to that? Absolutely. Yeah. You got to face your fears. Yeah. Jumping in water over your head. I think I used to have sharkophobia. At least I was paranoid about it. <laughs> and between Raz and Ariba, I said, I'm taking six months off. I said 100 bowls. I structured them uh, different ways. Spiritual, physical, family, intellectual, all that. One of the things I did is I said, well, I think a good way to overcome that fear or face it or jump right in at it is I'm going to learn how to scuba dive and go in Monterey Bay where the great whites are. Oh, and uh, I did it. <laughs> to this day, man, I love scuba diving. But yeah. I can tell you going in there, man, I was looking around. I was I, I sucked up all that oxygen in that tank really fast. Yeah, you're, you're braver than me. As an avid surfer, I have a media blackout on anything shark-related. Won't watch the movies, <laughs> won't watch the news, any of that stuff. What's the secret sauce of Silicon Valley? Pay it back mentality. And I never forget when John Chan was a great mentor for many years when I was CEO of Ariba. We would meet every month for breakfast and he would just go, he has this good West Virginia draw. <laughs> he would go, Kate, ask me anything you like, anything at all. Things you can't ask your family. Uh, you can't ask your executive team. You can't ask your board. I remember about a year into it, and he goes, Come in. He goes, Keith, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. But John, what am I thinking? Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? I go, as a matter of fact, I was getting ready this morning. And I was thinking about that. He goes, I'll tell you why. You see, I came out from Boston. I worked for Wang. And I didn't know. Shoot from Shinola. Somebody did it for me. God bless his soul. Luke Platt, the former CEO of HP. And I asked him the same question. I said, Lou, why are you doing it for me? He goes, well, you see, somebody did it for me. That is the secret. That is the magic of Silicon Valley. It's to give back and to pay it forward. And he goes, I don't ask for anything in return. I just ask that you do it for somebody else. That's pretty cool. The downstream effect of all these successful guys putting it down to the next generation. Everybody asks me, they go, what do you think your legacy is going to be business-wise? It's not going to be the companies that I built or the industry is disrupted. I think it's going to be... The folks that I've mentored, my dad always used to say, you never know if you're a good father until you see your children's children. You'll never know how great a leader you are until you see your mentees' mentees. (laughs) So I think at the end of the day, and that's also the principles we learned in Sigma Chi. Those are core principles is pay it forward to that next generation so that the world is better for your grandchildren. Even a small example that I think about at Sigma Chi, when I was McGeester, did a lot of stuff in the house, but I was never a front table guy. Did a lot of the behind the scenes stuff and the fun stuff, social chairman. But McGeester was really rewarding because that's where you really learn to be a mentor, right? To 11 men who are coming through the process. I was the only McGeester that I know of that had 100% retention. All 11 guys that started finished, and they all became the leaders of the house. They all became the next 
president and the next vice president and guys that did front table positions and gone out to do other things. And I don't really pat myself on the back for that. It's just that I showed up and I led by example and I participated and was hopefully a role model of what a good brother was supposed to look like. Yeah, it's funny how those lessons from Sigma Chi just continue to show down the road, especially in hindsight. Dylan, you did something right for the non-Sigma Chi's listening in. McEaster meets teacher in Latin and was responsible for indoctrinating and preparing his brothers for eventually becoming Sigma Chi's. That's one of the great experiences I had the honor of being McGeester at Purdue as well. That was the most rewarding thing I did as undergraduate for sure. In your LinkedIn it says you were serving to inspire and mentor a new generation of transformational leaders in public, private, and social sectors. What does that mean to you? That means create that next generation, or at least inspire them, or give them a few how-dos based upon the scars I've accumulated on, on my back, give them a little OPE, and really across sectors. So not just from a business standpoint, but there's so many great social entrepreneurs out there who are really doing noble things around the world. I really enjoy my interactions with those type of folks because they're really on a mission and it's not about the scoreboard in terms of money and all that kind of stuff it's about impact and i also think in the public sector as well because that's just such a critical area for our nation and there are some amazing people who work at all different levels of the government from diplomats to the military to the brain trust in terms of policy makers and those folks are very, very mission-driven, hard work, super smart. For me, that's a fun thing. These principles are universal, and they can be applied across all kinds of sectors, whether it's private, public, higher education in general, or the social sector. I learn a lot every time I do. I take the best from column A, the best from column B, the best from column C, right? <laughs> yeah, I can think of that a current ambassador to China is doing some pretty cool stuff, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's a good, he was former governor of Iowa. I mean, he's got a big job on his hands, but he's doing a a great job. And I think being a diplomat, particularly in a place like China, is just so critically important to our nation. One of our fraternity brothers, John Huntsman, is ambassador to Russia. My neighbor is ambassador to Austria. We have another great Simakai brother. Ambassador Haggerty in Japan. So that's a very important role for our country. In a recent Barron's article in regards to DocuSign's upward stock price, you said that successes highlight how digitization and improvements to productivity underpin the economy, U.S.'s ability to compete globally, especially in automated factories and retail. What do you think is the next big trend in automation? What do we have coming down the pipe? We've got a long way to go in accelerating the digital transformation, but it's moving along fast and it gives the country a speed. And there's a big initiative with the IT modernization program, federal government that is now being accelerated. And I think all these things accelerate, not just the high tech business, but basic industries. I think that's key. That leads to taking advantage of all the great benefits of artificial intelligence. When you have all the data that comes from digitization, there's all the things in terms of the robotics area, stuff we dreamed about in the early 80s when we were building industrial robots. Anything from the medical area to personal use and all that. And at the end of the day, all this drives productivity, and that productivity is what drives 
GNP per capita, and that is basically the standard of living, which increased that standard of living around the world. That's so critical in terms of doing whatever we can to achieve world peace. The other key aspect of the digitization is from a national security front, mm -hmm. because cyber warfare increases by the day. It's it, That's downright scary, and most breaches begin physical breaches with paper and those kind of things. So I think it's really, really important for our country and a lot of things are going to be changed. And they ask, well, what's the next big area to disruption? I think higher education is one of those. Yeah. Purdue's being a catalyst for that. I mean, we have to attack this 1.4 trillion student debt problem that is a boat anchor to our economy and a boat anchor to a lot of young people. Yeah. I think there's so much opportunity out there in this world. That's that's why I'm really so passionate about the world needing more transformational leaders. I started this podcast to on my quest to build the world's greatest sales culture. Can you think of a great salesperson or business development person who was able to break through to you? And what did you do that was different than the rest? I'm sure you get hit up pretty often for uh, by people. If you look at what are top two skills in a salesperson, the first one is empathy, customer empathy. Can you put yourself in a person's shoes. You gotta be a good listener. I think the second one is drive. And that is when the world hands you a sack of sour lemons, the objective of the game is to make sweet lemonade out of it. it. Takes a lot of resiliency, but you miss every shot you don't take. I think that's key. Closing a deal or doing business with somebody, it's all about one word. It's trust. It's trusted relationships. Mm -hmm. And by the way, that's true in leadership. So I think the most important executive skill is your ability to develop trusted relationships. And then in the business world, it's divided by time because time is the most precious commodity. So the most important skill is how fast can you build a trusted relationship? Can you do it over a lunch? Can you do it over a dinner? Can you do it in a meeting? One of the key things is you have to be vulnerable. If you're vulnerable with somebody, chances are they're gonna reciprocate in kind and they're gonna be vulnerable too. Once you have two people being vulnerable, there's a connection and then that kind of builds a trust. And that's kind of a little bit where the empathy is and the risk taking is, right? That's the magic of sales. Yeah, I think I read somewhere in my research that at Ariba, you had like a standing meeting on Fridays where people could just come and voice their opinion without any fear of repercussion or sounding stupid or any of that kind of stuff. And that seemed to accelerate vulnerability within your core group. And then it was so successful for you that you were able to say, go back to your teams, do this. And you could literally almost transform the entire organization from the top down by modeling that level of vulnerability and trust with your core team. And then modeling that for the rest of the company. Yeah, you hit on a core thing, and that is a great technique to create a safe environment. And that's the key, is create a safe environment so you get the best out of people, so you can be a multiplier. It's not always in staff meetings or offsites or company meetings. Company meetings, we've got to like 150 people, and we would do it. Where we would do a round table, you go around and say whatever you want, whatever's on your mind. Sigma Chi, we call that a good for the right. good of the order. <laughs> and it's the same thing I do with my five kids and family. And it's like everybody knows when we go out to dinner. And by the way, it was like we combined Meta's family in there. I mean, it was 20. We always do a good of the order. And the little kids, they love it. 
And you just go around. Nobody can interrupt. They can say whatever's on their mind. That creates a safe environment. And then you, you picked up on a great observation. When you do that with your executive staff or the beginning of a company, that gets cascaded down and then it becomes institutionalized. Then it's part of the company culture. Really powerful. It's just that little simple thing that I learned from Sid McKay. It's been a secret, one of the great secrets. I've never seen one fail. I remember, this was a few years ago, we're in Japan. We had about, at that time, we had about 20 guys in Japan. Our chief of staff said, hey, I just talked to the manager director. He said, no, 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 a round table doesn't work in Japan. And I, <laughs> and I go, just tell him he's wrong and watch, listen, and learn. Because I've done hundreds in Japan. Germany, those two places who that are the most hierarchical, you think would work, they love them more than anything. It's like <laughs> releasing a coiled spring. It's medicine. Yeah, it is. It's it's. It's food for the soul. I, I read in, a, in an article that you were quoted and recently said that less than half of workers say that they have a great deal of trust in employers, bosses, or colleagues. What does that say about the state of work today and how can we fix it? The research shows that, and I, and I do believe it. And if you look at when you're a leader, the most important thing is to build trust in your team, sideways, up and down, and diagonally everywhere because if you don't have that level of trust there's no way to unify the team there's no way to mobilize the team there's no way to align the team consequently you won't get the most out of that team a key thing to build trust you'd be vulnerable like as a leader as a ceo you stand up in front of the crowd 95 percent of the people know your failures your flaws and your fears they soon will <laughs> the best thing to do is don't ignore that and play with it and have fun with it and mock yourself out. A sense of humor goes a long way. I think that's a secret ingredient to leadership, a sense of humor, because think about it. What makes a great leader? Well, people love to follow that leader. Why do people love to follow that leader? Because that person's fun to be around. A self-deprecating sense of humor, nuclear uh, weapon, I mean, it's great. The key is self-deprecating because it's just not funny to mock out somebody else. It's not yeah. funny. That's what I tell my ladies. That is just not funny. Right. Plus, you could hurt somebody's feelings. Yeah. When you pick yourself as the target, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> I got you laughing. Already. I read another story about an offsite that you had facilitated where it's, okay, well, let's... Uh, Strengths and weaknesses, I think it was. Right. And, and a lot of subsequent material came out of that where your team got together and you said, hey, let's have at it. What are my strengths and what are my weaknesses? And they're going through the flipboard and you've got five just killer strengths and you're excited and pumped up. And then weaknesses come out and you got 21. Oh, man. <laughs> what does 21 that mean? weaknesses. <laughs> How about that? And they yeah. missed a bunch. But <laughs> what was funny is... Uh, uh, our guy who was VP of Engineering, his name was Paul Haggerty. He had just been VP of Engineering next, so he worked directly for Steve Jobs. And he goes, Croc, I think you're the best CEO I ever worked for. He goes, but how do those 21 weaknesses feel? I go, actually makes me feel okay because it's the reason why I'm doing it because I want to improve myself. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, seven of those weaknesses, shoot, I know their weaknesses, man. I'm working on it, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> There's another seven in there that are absolutely Blind spots. I never thought about that, but mm -hmm. now I think about it, you're absolutely right. So thanks. And I said, you know, there's about there's another seven here. You're just dead wrong. Those aren't weaknesses, but perception is reality. Yeah. So it's up to me. It's my responsibility. I'm accountable for making sure that you don't perceive those as weaknesses or to prove to you that they're not. 
And then at the end of that offsite, it was a great offsite because we had been going through some tough times. And it was really unifying. And it was fun, actually, too, because I got plenty of opportunities to mark myself out. I said, you guys may want to try it with your own teams. Now, you probably won't have 21 weaknesses, and then maybe their, their teams will do it. And that's exactly what happened. It was a great cascade. You've accomplished quite a lot in your career. Chairman of DocuSign, chairman of Angie's List, founder and CEO and chairman of Ariba, youngest vice president in the history of General Motors in your 20s, all the work that you've done around philanthropy and as a VC and an entrepreneur. What's next? By the way, all that stuff is great. I'm really proud of that. I'll tell you the thing I'm most proud of is my family. And I, I just have, because as you're rattling that stuff off, I'm saying, God, that, that's minuscule compared to how I feel about my family and my wife, Meta, and just amazing international street artist, <laughs> Georgetown lawyer. She's great. And the five kids at heart, if you ask me what I want on my tombstone or what I do, it, uh, that first and foremost. But in the outside of the family, what I'm going to do next, it's going to be give back and pay it forward. Now, something will come along. I'm going to step away from DocuSign in January. I'm looking for an opportunity to have impact in a very meaningful way. Or let me put it this way, you know, big way, little way, but most of all, meaningful way. I've always appreciated getting to know you and to watch you from afar. My first client when I came into this industry, so I'll always remember that. So thanks so much. Well, thank you, Dylan, man. Awesome. Very proud to be on the show. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, everybody, for listening. That's all the time we have for today. If you like this podcast, don't forget to share it with a friend or give us a rating on iTunes or give us a like or a comment on social media. We'll see you next week.